Good morning, everybody. I wasn't here last week, so Happy New Year to you all. It's great to see you. I got a, a week in uh, California with the family, which was really good and refreshing, and so I'm ready to go for another six, seven weeks now. So um, that's exciting. Um, if you're new here, we welcome you. We're glad that you're here. My name is Frank. Uh, I am the lead pastor of Redemption Arcadia. And the reason that we single out Arcadia is this, if you're kind of new to this, uh, Redemption Church is actually one church with now nine congregations in Arizona, including uh, Tucson and Flagstaff and our newest congregation, which is Peoria, which was planted, uh, which is actually being planted right now as we speak out of the Arcadia congregation. Um, this is our first Sunday without Sean Myers here uh, in uh, almost three years, so that's why it's a little quieter today than um, uh, normal, but uh, Peoria is uh, up and running, and their official launch service is going to be the Sunday after Super Bowl, which will be February uh, 8th, in case you're wondering about the uh, timing of that. Uh, we are a church, Redemption is a church uh, whose mission is really to uh, birth and sustain uh, healthy local churches. And uh, we believe that we're better together, and so that's why we are together. And so um, we have redemption churches all over the valley as well uh, as in the other two cities. And um, we're always looking to uh, see, according to our leadership and uh, the call of God on our lives, uh, where else we might uh, believe that God is calling us to do a work. And so um, one of the things that we're going to do this morning is we're going to announce to you that uh, Arcadia is pregnant once again. So we didn't waste any time, I'll tell you. And Redemption uh, at large, Big R Redemption is also uh, pregnant again. Uh, we are planning to uh, uh, plant a, a new church, a new Redemption church in Scottsdale. Uh, that we are, uh, th- there's been some background work already being done on that. And we're going to bring that background work to the foreground now and make sure that everybody's uh, up to speed on that and everybody knows uh, what's going on with that. We're going to have some information meetings and all that. And the hope is that we're going to be able to plant this church uh, officially in August or September uh, of this year, so 2015. Uh, And the planting pastor of that is going to be our own Sean Mortensen, who is an elder here at Arcadia. So come on out. Sean's been waiting in the wings for me to invite him out. So come on out. If you don't know Sean, Sean is probably officially the longest serving, you are the longest serving person at Redemption Arcadia, aren't you? I mean, you were here when, when it was Praxis, right? Yeah, that's right. So you, you started here right when Praxis started this location. Is that about right? Yes. Days after my daughter was born, uh, we transitioned to what was then Praxis Arcadia, which is the very genesis of this congregation. Yeah. And then Praxis merged with East Valley Bible Church and it became Redemption. And then we've been uh, growing from there. And you have always been an elder. You're like the founding elder <laughs> of Arcadia, right? Yes, you, I suppose you could say that. Okay. Yeah. And so um, about three years ago, you transitioned into a new job with, re, with uh, Redemption, Big R Redemption. You became the pastor of media and communication. So you managed all of our communications, all of our graphic stuff, and our website and all of that. And you've done an excellent job. But from the very beginning, you have always told us and told Tyler, our lead pastor, that you are not going to be the pastor of media and communications for the rest of your life, that you feel called to actually shepherd a church. And so um, you, you have been talking about this now for a year and a half, two years, about what that looks like, and, and now we're ready to move forward with that. So 
What is the burn that you have as an elder, as a shepherd, as a pastor, and as a disciple of Christ to plant a church and to, and to shepherd people? Yeah, so as Frank mentioned, um, leading a congregation, not inherently church planting, but leading a congregation uh, has been part of my story for a long time and, and the path that God has had me on for a long time. And like most of our stories, uh, that path has included uh, different chapters and, uh, you know, a, a different uh, directions uh, that bring us to where we are here. And God has been preparing me for this all along. Uh, and on a personal level, uh, just how God has gifted me and wired me and talking about that burn, like Frank said. Um, so for me, I, God has gifted me to, I, I really think theologically quite a bit. I have education in that. And I think culturally a lot. And how those two things work together and interact, uh, I can't turn that off in my mind. Right. Um, and God has also wired me to really think about how all of the pieces of life, our, our practices, our programs of the church, our language, every element of life. I'm a big all-of-life proponent, as, as redemption confesses all the time. Uh, all of those aspects of life, how all of those things work together to direct our affections, to reveal our affections, uh, to direct our worship, and to form us, uh, that's another thing. I couldn't turn that off if I tried. So I'm always thinking about these things. I'm always thinking and processing about how all of these things of life work together to form a people to know Jesus Christ and rest in Jesus Christ and find their identity and purpose in Jesus Christ and form a community to believe and live the gospel amidst a world that desperately needs Jesus Christ. And so, like I said, that's, I couldn't turn that off if I tried. I'm always thinking about that. I'm always processing. It's what, I, uh, yeah, it, it's what I'm thinking about when I'm laying in bed at night. It's what I want to go on Twitter rants about. It's everything, right? <laughs> it's just it's, it's what uh, God has placed on my heart. Uh, and so uh, I feel that call, I feel that burden to uh, exercise that gifting and that leadership ability uh, to help form a people and help direct a people and shepherd a people to know and love Jesus Christ. Uh, and I would say the last few years uh, serving as pastor of meeting communications, I've had the honor of serving on the lead team of Redemption, which has been uh, just an incredible blessing for me. And I've seen my own, I think, capacity and uh, excitement and burn to lead a congregation once yeah. again grow during that time. So I'm incredibly thankful for that. Yeah, that's awesome. That sounds really good. Um, t- tell us about Scottsdale specifically, though. It's not just that you have a burn to lead a church and to shepherd people, but you have a burn for Scottsdale as well. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, knowing that this is what God is ultimately calling me towards, uh, my wife and I have been praying about this, about the next steps for a couple years now. And uh, when you feel like, okay, God's calling us to do this, but not sure quite when and where and what it's going to look like, it really starts with infinite possibilities. And so, I mean, we could have moved anywhere in the world uh, just seeking God's direction and seeking God's wisdom on it. And over a two-year process, it really went from infinite possibilities of anywhere to uh, exactly right where we were standing. And, and I really believe, you know, sometimes when you're pursuing faithfulness, God calls you to uh, a great adventure that's out there somewhere. And I think sometimes when you're pursuing faithfulness, God calls you just to be faithful where you are and build something really beautiful right where you're standing. And, and I think that's what we found. Um, and I think, you know, I've lived and worked in Scottsdale for 11 years. And so I'm uh, familiar with 
the reputation that Scottsdale has, uh, good and bad, uh, not wholly without merit. And um, I think in the last season here, God has really given me new eyes to see the city, particularly the southern end where I live, uh, in a new light and gain an appreciation not only for what it is, but what, for what it's becoming and might become. And I really do think even the cultural identity of the area is up for grabs. Uh, if you're on the ground in South Scottsdale right now, you realize there's just a tremendous amount of development happening. Uh, it's a time of transition in the area. Um, a lot of educated people moving in, tons of apartments and condos being built, tech companies moving in, that sort of thing. Uh, so it's a time of transition. And uh, what we found is that... Um, uh, I don't want to diminish the ministry that has happened or is happening in South Scottsdale right now, but we found that the theology and culture of redemption would uh, place a congregation in Southern Scottsdale that would be unique to congregations that are in the area right now. And so in the midst of that transition, we see a need there, and we also see an opportunity to really go in and establish a faithful presence in the area. And so on a personal level, uh, I have an appreciation for the place where, I mean, that's where I've made my life for the last, where my my wife and I, our family, we've made our life for the last uh, 11 years. Um, You know, that's where we know where the best breakfast burritos and sushi and everything (laughs) is in the area. Um, uh, So we have a a call to it, to the people there, to the area. uh, But then we also see an opportunity and a need uh, speaking redemption-wide. So right now we're calling it Redemption Scottsdale, but specifically geographically it's probably going to be Southern Scottsdale. Right. Um, but we'll work on the name if we yeah. need to It's later. a hotly contested name, uh, not even within yeah. Redemption, but even beyond what, what you call this part of town. And, and Redemption Mortensen is out. It's apparently. out. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So. Um, and we Sean tried that would be confusing. And, yeah, okay, we got erased off the board right away. So you, uh, behind the scenes, there's been some discussions with some um, people who live in Scottsdale and, and leaders, uh, some from Arcadia, some from other places as well, to, to sort of test the waters of interest for this, and there's been a high level of interest. But now we're going to take this public, and I know you're planning a public informational meeting, so tell yes. us a little bit about that. Yes, so the evening of January 25th, which is a Sunday evening, uh, right here at 5 o'clock, we're going to have an info meeting. This is the first public communication that this is happening. There are some of you, obviously, that know about this already. Uh, We've had some conversations behind the scenes uh, just with leaders and things, and and it's spread a little bit, which is great. So some of you know this is the first public announcement, so uh, word will get out now, which is great. And uh, to field any questions and to cast a little more vision, we're going to have an info meeting on January 25th right here, 5 p.m., Redemption Arcadia. Uh, And if you are curious at all, uh, the best next step for you is to go to redemptionscottsdale.com. And when you go there, there's a really brief uh, form for you to fill out. You could do it easily on your phone in 30 seconds. Uh, Just fill that out, and that just allows us to get a little bit of information from you. And filling that out, that form out. It doesn't commit you to anything except receiving one email from us with more information. So if you're curious at all, I would direct you to that, redemptionscottsdale.com. Come talk to me or you can email me. My email's up there, uh, Sean Mortensen at redemptionaz.com. I would absolutely love uh, to talk to you more about this. Excited? Yes. All right. I'm going to be praying for you and we're all going to be praying for you a lot in these next uh, eight, nine months, but let me pray for you now. And then you can pray for me as I go into the litany of other announcements I have this morning, okay? All right. God, we thank you for how you call and equip your people. And that call and and the way you've equipped Sean has been so apparent to many of us. 
for so long, and now we see that being put into action, and we're excited about that. And so we pray for Sean and for Sharon and for their family, and we just ask that you would bless them and, and empower them. Uh, give them eyes to see. Give them your wisdom. Uh, give them your peace, your hope, and your comfort as well. And most of all, give them your perseverance, because um, uh, even though we are called to your work, the work can be challenging, and, and it can be hard. Uh, but, but Sean is a magnificent uh, shepherd, and so we know that, um, that this is what he's going to do, and he's going to do it well by your power. So we lift him up to you. We pray for him, and we know that all the work that he does is going to glorify you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, man. All right. Yes. Yay, God. All right. I'm sorry. It is January, which means we have a ton of information to communicate to you. And, and I've got another five, six, seven minutes of announcements. I'm sorry about that. And we cut out several announcements as well. So just be aware of that. Uh, I want to mention that, um, first of all, let me just talk a little bit about finances. Uh, every, every year, we, we work very hard at managing and stewarding the money that you give to Redemption uh, as well as we possibly can, and we've done that again this year. Um, but we also recognize that in order to manage the money, we have to, you guys have to give money as well. And I just want to say that we don't have audited figures yet. We'll have that probably at the beginning of February for you. I'll spend more time in February explaining how 2014 ended up and what our budget is and our goals for 2015. But I just want to say that um, things finished very well at the end of December. You guys uh, came through once again like you always do. You were very generous. And, and just, we just want to say thank you again for uh, your generosity and how you allow us to be able to do this work here. And like I said, uh, we finished strong, we finished well, but I'll give you more details as soon as we actually have audited figures on that. Uh, let me take a moment to talk about children's ministry. We have three things that are converging uh, essentially on uh, children's ministry that we, we need to be, make sure that you guys are aware of. Uh, number one, we have planted Redemption um, uh, Peoria. And, and by planting Redemption Peoria, uh, that took away uh, five or six of our workers from downstairs, our children's workers. So we're down uh, some workers downstairs in children's ministry because of the Redemption Peoria plant. That's the first thing. The second thing is you need to know, if I haven't said this before or if you haven't heard it before, I'm going to say it again. Uh, Two years ago, an average Sunday morning between both services was 40 to 45 children downstairs. Today, we average anywhere from 85 to 120 downstairs and we are continuing to grow. And so just by growth, it... Our children's department in Arcadia is possibly the fastest growing department in all of redemption. And so you need to know that just by growth numbers, um, there's some people snickering out there at that last comment. I know how that might sound to some of you, but that's good. You're doing a good job. So uh, anyway... Uh, Anyway, so the growth also puts pressure on us. Uh, And then the other thing is that we have been uh, doing some auditing of, 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 of our practices as well in children's ministry. And as most of you know, safety is always our number one concern, but we're always looking for ways that we can even improve that. And so uh, there's a couple of things, some, a couple of adjustments that we think were warranted and that we'd like to make in terms of making sure that the children are as safe as they possibly uh, can be down there. And so we really 
really need uh, some volunteers, some helpers uh, in that ministry. And we would love it if you could come and help. You, you would not only be ministering to the children, but you'd also be ministering to the parents of those children. And, and let me just mention this personally. My two daughters, Shelby and Darby, uh, who are now 22 and 18 years old, they still to this day talk about the connection and the relationship that they've had with their Sunday school teachers over the years. So this is an important thing. Uh, that you're not just going down there and babysitting. You're actually pouring your life, a gospel-centered life into these kids. And they remember that and, and they see how important that is. And so I would just encourage you again to uh, think about contacting Linda and asking if you could uh, help down there. Uh, the next thing that we have to announce, very exciting as well, uh, some of you have known for the last 10 months uh, David Massey. Actually, David's been around here for three or four years uh, attending anyway as a student at Phoenix Seminary, but the last 10 months he's been with us part-time as a resident pastor, and he is going to be going full-time now. So David, why don't you come out for a second? Let's talk about uh, this transition for you. Uh, this is what he looks like now. So Jesus has done a good job because he also at one time... You did not. Yeah, I did. Oh my so, gosh. <laughs> um, so we're, we're, we're nicknaming him the Sinister Minister, if, that, if that's... Uh, and last week I started growing a mustache and then he sent me this picture and I just shaved it off because there's no way I could possibly compete. But anyway, David is now... <laughs> Sorry, everybody. <laughs> David is now full-time with us. He is going to be uh, overseeing RCs. If you remember Eugene Scott, Eugene did that, but now David is going to be uh, doing that. Eugene's in Boston overseeing Harvard University. So, um, so he's going to be overseeing RCs. He's going to be helping with our student ministries. He's going to be helping JP and Carrie Tanner uh, in that area. So he's going to be helping with students. He's also going to be working with Josh Prather in community global uh, and global initiatives. And he's going to be doing a ton of, and he already has been doing, a ton of pastoral care uh, as well. So uh, that, those are going to be your, and you're going to be busy, man, I'm telling you. He's also going to preach occasionally, okay, and teach some classes. So welcome to our full-time staff. And yeah, just, yeah, you, you got anything to say to no, us? I'm, yeah, I'm excited. Okay. Uh, my preaching will be, I won't yell at you like Sean Myers did as much. So there's that. Um, and I'm just really looking forward to it. I mean, in all seriousness, I love you guys. I'm thankful for the way you guys love me. And this is a really great privilege and opportunity, so thanks. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks. You're certainly hairier than Sean was, so that's cool. Yeah, it, it comes and goes. That's <laughs> yeah. not normal. I don't normally do that. Yeah, I Can know. we not do that in second service? Really, it's the glare, you know. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Frank. Very impressive. Yes, thank you. Uh, a couple other quick things. Number one, remember this Wednesday starts our membership class for three straight weeks from 6 to 8, Wednesday nights, the 14th, 21st, and 28th. We're going to feed you a little uh, bit of dinner, and then we're going to have the membership class. Uh, we're not going to lecture you or preach to you or anything like that. We want to stay away from that. Uh, so we would encourage you to go online and start reading the membership packet that we have online, which is no small feat. It's 60-something pages long. So we would encourage you to start reading that if you're going to come because we'd rather just have a discussion about that. We'll eat and then we'll start to have a discussion about that from 6 to 8 right here in this room. Uh, please sign up so we know how much food to get. Right now I believe we have about 25 people who are signed up for that which is a really good response. Uh, for one of these things, and we appreciate that. The last thing before I finally uh, allow us to read the, today's passage and get into the sermon, which is also going to take a couple of hours. So um, uh, next week is the P.F. Chang's Marathon. So really, listen up right now. 
This is really important because it will be very easy if you follow my instructions to get to church next Sunday. If you don't, it's going to, you're going to pull your hair out, okay? So there is what's known as the P.F. Chang's Phoenix box. And that box, listen carefully, that box is uh, on the um, uh, west side of town is 7th Avenue running north to south. On the north side of town, it's Camelback Road running east to west. And on the east side of town, it's 48th Street running north to south. So if you live outside of that box in, in relationship to Redemption Arcadia, if you live outside of 7th Avenue, outside of Camelback, or outside of 48th Street, the only way you can get here is to find your way to the 51 and get off at Thomas Road or find your way to the 202 and get off at either 40th Street or 32nd Street. That's the only way you're going to be able... If you live inside the box, just head to, to church. You'll be fine. You won't have any problems. Even if you're like the DeSerafinos who live one block from Camelback, you just exit the, y- your neighborhood south and you'll be able to make it to church. But if you're outside of that box, the only way you're going to be able to get in here is to get on the 51 and get off at Thomas and head, and head east or get on the 202 and get off at 40th Street or 32nd Street and head north, okay? So that's really, really easy, but you need to remember that for next Sunday, Okay? And we'll have those instructions on the website as well. All right? We good? All right. David is going to read us today's scripture, please. Uh, If you would stand for that, please. Our scripture reading today comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, David. So we are starting a four-week series this week. All the Redemption churches are doing a series on, uh, of some sort on family, but each local congregation has been allowed to define and determine how they're going to uh, interpret that and preach on it. Unlike the series that we're going to start on February 8th, we are going to start the Gospel of Mark on February 8th going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse. It's going to take us about a year and a half to be able to uh, do that, and everybody's going to be exactly on the same page in that. But we all get to do our own thing for family, and we've decided to call our series God's, God's Family. And what we're going to do is we're going to, uh, obviously we're going to have to spend some time defining what family means for our purposes for the next four weeks, which I'll get to in a few minutes. But what we want to do is we want to look at family or relationships or community, however you want to define it. What we want to do is take these four weeks and look at uh, the issue of family, God's family, through these four lenses. And that would be creation, fall, redemption and restoration. There are a number of theologians who have said, and redemption buys into this, we talk about this a lot, 
that if you were to take the entire Bible, all 66 books of the Bible, and you were to divide it into four chapters, so to speak, you would have these four chapters. You would have God's good creation, which is Genesis 1 and 2, and that's where we'll be today in Genesis 1 and 2. God created everything good. And that's the creation chapter. But then comes the fall chapter. That's when everything gets broken. And that chapter is very, very small too. It's just Genesis chapter 3. But then comes the redemption chapter. And that redemption chapter in the Bible actually goes from Genesis chapter 4 all the way into the New Testament into Revelation chapter 20. And and that redemption chapter is all about uh, God's salvation history and how he works to redeem his people. And, and, And ultimately, he does that through his son, Jesus Christ. And so that'll be the third week, looking at God's family through redemption. And then the fourth week is that restoration chapter, which is essentially Revelation part to 20, and and then all of Revelation 21 and 22. What does it look like? uh, What is the restored creation as well as us being restored look at? And so we're going to look at family through those four lenses over the next four weeks. So today we're going to talk about God's family in terms of creation. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to define family then we're going to look at what creation means to us as humans, especially in, in the context of relationships, of family. And then I'll take just a minute to preview next week, which will be uh, God's family through the eyes of the fall, which is when everything gets broken. So let me define family. I spent some time looking up what the nuclear family, so-called nuclear family, or the basic social unit, what that is. And here are some of the definitions I got. Number one, it's a group of people related to one another by blood or marriage, or you could say shared DNA, okay? Number two, it's a group consisting of parents and children living together in a household, so less emphasis on, on the blood and the DNA, but more on who's living together. Number three, all the descendants of a common ancestor. So in other words, now we're talking about lineage and, and legacy and things like that. And then this was actually, number four, this was actually one of the definitions. It's a group of people united in criminal activity, so... Uh, Those of you that enjoy the Godfather movies like I do, you'll get that. So anyway, we're talking about, uh, in a nuclear family, we're talking about parents and siblings and expanding to uh, cousins and uncles and aunts and grandfathers and all that, and you're talking about lineage and legacy. But as you know, there is more than one way to define family, and there's more than one way that we define family today as well. And so one of the Uh, primary ways that we as Christians would define family would be through the church. The church is our family. The church functions as a family. The church is described in Scripture as a family, as a matter of fact. Uh, In Scripture, we are told that Jesus is the head. He is the head of the church. He's the head of the family, but He's also the groom. He's also the groom. And the church, His people, us, we are the bride. We are the bride of the groom. And Paul describes us in 1 Corinthians in his, in his first letter to the church at Corinth. Paul describes each of us as individual members with various um, giftings and talents and abilities and reasons to be able to fit into this social unit, into this family. We are all members and none of us are expendable. All of us fit in somehow. Even though, and I know this is true, we all know this, even though we look at some people in our church family and we say, they're like misfits. No, no, no. God says even the, quote, those that we would see as misfits, He would say, no, they fit in as members somehow in this church family. 
But ultimately, church always seems to come back to behaving like family. And so, really, we're talking about uh, God's family as the church, the New Testament church. And, and again, if you think about the way the narratives of the Old Testament and the New Testament go, you know that in the Old Testament, people felt blessed by having children. But in the New Testament, really, it seems like that blessing shifts to uh, discipleship and, and making disciples. Jesus even tells us in Matthew 28, Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them everything that I've commanded you. Your family is going to be uh, uh, dependent upon making disciples, being in discipleship, in community together. And so what Scripture would tell us, what God would tell us, is that you and I in the church as Christians are now united by something even stronger than DNA. And that would be Jesus and the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news meaning that you and I, because we are sinful, because we are corrupted by the fall, which we'll look at next week, you and I fall short of God's glory. We, we are not holy like God is. And so rather than us having to work our way to God, which is impossible, God has provided a way for us to be reconciled to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, whose life, death, and resurrection redeems us and will eventually restore us to Him. That is the good news. The bad news is that we're separated from God by our sin. The good news is that that God has reconciled us through Jesus Christ and has forgiven us of our sin, made us righteous, and has justified us. And so we're united by this this gospel of Jesus. I've had this experience. I know a few of you at least have had this experience. I've, I've gotten on a plane. I've sat down next to somebody. And within the first couple of minutes, I found out that they are also a Christian. And, and let's say I'm going to Chicago. For the next three hours, I will have a conversation with that person And I will reveal things about myself and my life that I have never had with my blood brothers and sisters, my DNA brothers and sisters. And yet, because we're connected by the gospel, it it just flows. And and so that's an example, that's an illustration of how uh, this thing, this gospel, this Jesus is is stronger even than DNA. And you've got to remember that especially in Romans, which we just came out of, Romans chapter 8 is especially strong on this kind of language. We are adopted sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ and we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God and all that God has to offer us. And so that's our family. That's our connection. And it's interesting because that family creates some problems for our other families as well. Uh, Let me read this little uh, passage to you out of Luke chapter 12. This is Jesus talking here. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus is saying that this family of God is actually going to create divisions in your so-called DNA family as well. 
He says, uh, when he says, when he talks about casting fire here, he's not talking about casting the fire of judgment, which when we think of the Bible casting fire, in, in the Bible the term casting fire, we think of that final day of judgment, but that's not what he's talking about here. Rather, he's talking about the fire, the metaphorical fire that always comes with controversy and division that is created by truth. Have you ever had to speak a hard truth to somebody and it created controversy and division with them? Well, think about Jesus' entire life of ministry. This was hard truth for many people to hear and it created controversy and division to the extent that it got Him killed. It got Him crucified. His message, His message which is truth, is going to create controversy and division So much so that his gospel message will even divide people who are united in DNA. And then he talks about his baptism, this baptism of his life, his death, and his resurrection. Again, is a more important reality, he's saying, than DNA. And I know some people would say, but you'd say of your sister or your brother, but you'd say, "But, but, but she's my blood. And we would say to you, yes, she is, but Jesus shed his blood for you. And I know for some of you, you're going, oh, that just sounds so cliche and flip. I get that. I don't know any other way to say it, though, because it's true. Jesus did shed his blood for you. You want to talk about blood? This guy gave it for you. And we're united in that. And this division that Jesus says is going to come will not avoid any relationship, including what we think of as family in terms of the nuclear family. And then we have this question, and, and I need to deal with this, especially in Arcadia. We have a lot of single people that, uh, that are a part of Redemption Arcadia. So we say, well, what about singles? And again, we would say, you, you should be defining your family, at least, um, at least partially, uh, you should be defining your family as the church. You're, a, you're, you're the bride of Christ. You're a part of being the bride. You are a member that fits into this church, into this family. Disciples and community. And you need to remember, even if you're, you're a single person, you still came from a nuclear family. At, at least a mother somewhere you came from. You came from a family. What I am suggesting is that we need to start changing the categories of the way we think. We need to change our categories of thinking. So I'm going to make... Two or three statements here that I really want you to hear before we move on that are really important, okay? So here's the first one. We need to start thinking this way. It's not just what the church can do for family, marriage, and kids. It's not just what the church is supposed to be providing for you as a married person, as, as a family, as, as, as having children, but rather what the family should be doing to serve the bride and the groom. And it's not just what the church should be doing for singles. What's the church doing for singles? What's the church doing for singles? It's a legitimate question, but it's not the only question. But also we should be asking this question, what should singles be doing to serve the bride and the groom? And here's something else I want you to hear. This is really important. If you're single, and I run into, I run into and I understand the passion for this. If you're single and you're just like, I, I need a spouse. I'm alone. I need a spouse. If you're single and you're, I, I need a spouse. I need a spouse to even just become legitimate in some people's eyes. If you're single and you feel like you need a spouse. Or, or, here you go, I run into this too. If you're married and you think somehow that makes you superior. I bagged my moose. Okay. 
God has blessed me, but not all y'all, okay? And I've run it, now you don't say it out loud like that, but you get that. Okay, so if you're single and you think you need a spouse, or you're married and you think that somehow that makes you superior, both of you all need to go and read and study 1 Corinthians 7 for about the next year. Because you're going to understand after reading 1 Corinthians 7 that Paul comes along and says whether you're married or single doesn't matter. It's who you are in Christ that matters. And that's the category I'm trying to get us to change the way we think about. And I'm not trying to pound on families. I have a family. I'm not trying to pound on singles. I was single for a long time. But rather, I want you to see this stuff through a gospel lens and not through a status lens. Take Facebook out of the way you're thinking about this, okay? And then remember that apart from the gospel, apart from the gospel, family, however we define family, is broken. Amen? It's broken. So your blood family, is it perfect? Far from it. Just turn and look at the person next to you if you're related, okay? Your church, this church family, are we perfect? little reticence there. It's okay. We're not perfect, okay? We're a bunch of sinners saved by grace. That's what we are. Your friend, I know a lot of people, my family is my friends. Broken? My family is my work, my co-workers. I'm sorry for you, but broken as well. My family is my study group, my, my school, my sorority, my fraternity, whatever. Broken, whatever family. Nobody can reasonably declare that family is the final and definitive defense against the world. Because family is broken and corrupted by sin as well. And it needs the gospel. So stop defending your definition of family and start realizing that whatever your definition is of family, family needs the gospel. It needs Jesus. And I recognize there are glimpses and previews and seasons of goodness and perfection in family. I get that. I live in that as well myself. But really, overall, it's broken. And the gospel is what redeems this. There's this some of you will remember this song. For some of you, this will be a brand new song for you. It's really, really corny. But the lyrics are absolutely true. So I'm, I'm going to attempt to sing this. I don't have a real great singing voice, but if you remember this song, and I, do we even have the words? I don't know. Oh yeah, we do. So you can just join in with me. Okay, here you go. This old song, corny, but it's true and accurate. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by His blood. Join heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. For I'm part of the family, the family of God. Corny, right? But true and accurate. I know you're like, please never sing again. I'm just trying to make a point here, y'all. Okay? All right. So, we're going to look at the family through the lens of creation now. Now the real preaching starts. Okay? So let me reread for you what David read for us. And I'm going to start there. Okay? So, God's been creating And he's created now for five days and he comes to the six days and everything he's created he said is good. And he comes to the sixth day and here's what he does. Then God said, let us, there's the Trinity, an allusion to the Trinity there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us make man, humankind, in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion, let them have um, trust, let them have stewardship over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves along the earth. In those three verses, which I could spend six weeks on, in those three verses, we actually see five key areas where God has created us with a specific identity. And I want to just reveal those to you. This is how God has created us. Number one, He has created us as image bearers of God. He's created us as His image here on earth. However we define family, wouldn't it be better if all of us remembered that whenever we're interacting with each other, we're interacting with an image bearer of God? Wouldn't that make our relationships somehow better? Wouldn't it make it better for you if people would remember you were created in the image of God? I have this illustration, and it's a movie, but it's an older movie, so many of you may not be familiar with this movie, but I've thought about this a long, long time because it's one of my favorite old movies. In 1967, there was an extraordinarily controversial movie that came out. It was controversial for 1967. Today, we look at it and go, what's the big deal? But it was very controversial in 1967. The name of the movie was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Uh, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, Catherine Houghton, and um, Sidney Poitier. And and now, who has seen the original? Not that stupid remake that was a few years ago. The original movie. Okay, so the, the whole premise of this movie is the movie takes place over the course of about six or eight hours. Um, uh, this young lady, 23-year-old lady named Joey, Catherine Houghton, uh, she meets a 37-year-old African-American guy while she's in Hawaii, visiting Hawaii, and they fall in love. 1967, white girl, black guy, going to get married. Okay, They fall in love and they want to get married. So they fly home to San Francisco to tell her parents, Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. Eventually his parents get involved as well. That's why it's guess who's coming to dinner because the dinner party just keeps growing. And the idea is that they need especially Spencer Tracy, the father, Mr. Drayden, his blessing before they feel like they can move forward with this wedding. And so the whole movie is this tension and the the debate over whether this should happen or whether it shouldn't happen. And there's a priest involved who thinks it's all very funny and grand and joyous and and loves it. And he's a funny guy, but there's just this tension and there's an argument and and, and there's crying and there's laughing and all this stuff. But it all builds up to this one moment in the movie where Spencer Tracy takes the last 10 minutes of the movie and he has this this speech that he gives on why he's going to give his blessing to this wedding, to Joey and, and uh, Dr. Prentice getting married and, and the trouble they're going to have, but he says they should do it anyway. And, and people hear this speech and they're moved emotionally. And every time I see it, I've seen it 25 times and I still cry. And it's a wonderful speech. I'm not taking away from this speech. But ultimately, the message is, if you really, really love each other, and you have these strong feelings for each other, then yes, I can bless this interracial marriage. And I would say that while that's good, it's not where we need to be. The reason that marriage is okay is because they are both image bearers of God. And that settles any debate. 
They are both image bearers of God. When God created us, he didn't create us with these kinds of differences and worries because that was a result of sin and how it makes us think about these differences. And he says that when he restores us, all nations are going to be healed. All ethnicities are going to live together and we're going to be healed and we're going to be a community and we're going to be a family. That's why it's okay for Joey and Dr. Prentice to get married. They missed it on that point, but it made us feel good. But the truth is we're image bearers of God. The second thing, he created us as rulers, as stewards to make things flourish. He didn't create us as rulers to dominate, control, and oppress, and abuse, but rather rulers to make things good and to help things grow and to create out of what he's given us and to produce and to generate and construct for the flourishing and benefit of all. We are cultivators. And in that, we create culture. And in family and in community and in relationship, when we do this together, it makes it even better and more powerful. At redemption, we say we're better together. Third, he created us as the pinnacle of creation. We're created last. We're created in God's image and likeness. We are the pinnacle of his creative work. He said that everything else he created was good, but he looks at us and he says, that's very good. That's, that's the pinnacle. That's the supreme. In, in Ephesians, Paul even describes us as God's masterpiece. Now, why is this important? It's important because we are God's reflection here on earth. We are created to display His goodness, His grace, His love, and His mercy. And when we work well together in doing those things, especially as a family, we show and reflect God to everything else. Fourth, we were created to be on mission. He says we're to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And so our mission is to create family, be family, and to produce out of what God has given us for our family, which is everybody. Am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, you are. Your sister's too. And then number five, we were created for God's provision. Understand that God created us as beneficiaries. God created us as beneficiaries. We're receivers of his resources and his life as gifts from him. And this may be the most amazing thing because every other ancient creation account that we have is all about how humans have to be slaves to the gods, but not this one. This creation account is unique on this point. God created us for good. He created us as good. And he created us for good and he created us so that he could provide for us. That's an amazing thing. We're beneficiaries. But then it doesn't stop there. As we reflect God and as we provide for each other in community, we also are not only beneficiaries, but we become benefactors to others. And so we're created as image bearers and as rulers and as the pinnacle and to be on mission and to be God's provision to be a provision. But then he takes it one step further. Let me read to you this passage in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, God gets more specific about what happens when he creates human beings and he creates them male and female. Let me read you the passage. It's 18 through 25, and then we'll spend a little bit of time unpacking that. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone, because he had created Adam, the man, and he put him in the garden to work it there. So it's not good that the man would be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
So the, God, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and when he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, and if you'll notice in your, in your text, um, this verse is set off. In other words, this is Hebrew poetry. The first time the man sees this woman, he just busts out into poetry. Guys, Okay, I guess I don't have to say it. And believe me, you could do better poetry than this probably. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, and verses 24 and 25 are critical. This is what we really want to get to. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, let me go back, and and in verse 18... It says that God's going to create a helper fit for the man. That's an interesting Hebrew idiom there. It's a a Hebrew idiom meaning two words that are put together that are not put together anywhere else in Scripture. This is the only place where they're put together. And it has a very, very special and significant meaning. It literally means a reciprocating partner or one who complements. In other words, he's going to make somebody for the man who is going to fill gaps and make complete. And in this case, it's a spouse that does it. Now, you notice that after he says this, he brings them all the animals and has them name the animals. Okay, well, why does he do that? It seems like there's a, there's a break in the narrative flow there. Well, the reason God is doing that is because he wants to point out to the man, number one, I've made all this stuff and there's no way you're going to find an appropriate or fit partner or helper for you in all of this stuff I've already made. And then it gives God the opportunity to kind of show off when he makes the woman. Okay, so you've seen everything else I've done. Now check out this babe right here. That's essentially what he's saying. And what does he do? He breaks into poetry. I'm looking at Maria and, and Aaron. Aaron, the first time you saw Maria, did you just start reciting poetry to her? Okay, I've got to talk to you, my brother, because that's a problem. And Maria, you should buy her lunch today, all right? So you see, this, this is a special deal. But in this case, it was a spouse, but not always. The problem is sometimes we take this passage to be prescriptive for life's condition. And, and, and um, Steve Tracy says, no, we shouldn't do that. Steve Tracy has written a lot about this. And let me read a paragraph to you that he has written. He says, Genesis 2.18 is not a global statement intended to apply to every human being. Rather, it is an explanation for the institution of marriage in the context of a world in which only animal con- companions were available for Adam. Hence, it is an unwarranted leap to move from it's not good to be, for man to be alone, Adam needs a wife, to the modern application, what some people use as the modern application of it isn't good for Bill or Sarah or Joe or Polly to be, uh, uh, to be alone. A- a- and so he needs a wife or she needs a... He says you can't universalize this. In other words, what Tracy is saying is that this verse is indicative of how much we need family and community, but not necessarily a spouse. And again, if you want confirmation of that, read the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul does not write in there, you're supposed to be married. That's what God said in Genesis 2. In fact, Paul says, I wish you were like me, single, because you could actually do more for the church. You could do more for the bride of Christ. That's why you need to read that. Now, The language from verses 24 and 25 is especially what we want to get at. We presented five identities 
of what we were created with, all good, in Genesis 1. Now I'm going to give you five threads of our character that are good for human flourishing that we see in Genesis 2. And the first one is covenant. You see that in verse 24. We were created with this, with this thread without sin of covenant. And understand, in verse 24, this is a representation of God's serious intention for you and I to live for each other. Again, in all the other ancient manuscripts and cultures, what we see is that men get to have several women. That's what we see. This, again, is unique. Yahweh, the God of this Bible, he says the covenant is that one fulfills one. This is revolutionary. And taken to the extent of family and relationships, what it reflects is God's desire for us to take covenant with each other just as serious. In other words, we are to live for each other. That's what a family does. Imagine if if families had this 100% covenant outlook all the time, we would flourish. The second thing is intimacy. You see that in verse 25. And I know some people look at verse 25 and go, yeah, they're naked and not ashamed. I like that kind of physical intimacy. Listen, physical intimacy is a part of it, but it's just a small part of what God is trying to get here. What he's trying to get at here is is this idea of emotional, spiritual, and physical intimacy where there's vulnerability, authenticity, and transparency of the like that you and I have never seen in this fallen world. We've never seen the kind of intimacy that God is talking about in 2.25. Never. We'd like to get there. We we know we have this desire to be there. We want to have this kind of emotional, spiritual, physical vulnerability and transparency with each other, but it's broken and so it's hard. And you could sum up all these things with one word. We want to be able to trust each other completely. Right? Don't we? Wouldn't that be great if we could do that? Well, that's how He created us. He created us so that we could. We we would be able to flourish in that environment. The third thread is yieldedness. Now, this is a word that's made up. A guy named John Ortberg made up this word, but I love this word. Ortberg uses this word to describe the relationship of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and how every time they talk about each other in Scripture, they're yielding themselves to the others. They're deferring themselves to the others. The word he uses is that they're shy towards each other. That the Father is always pushing forward the Son and the Spirit. The Son is always pushing forward the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit is always pushing forward the Father and the Son. They're yielded to each other. But it's also a description of how you and I are to see each other as well. You see this not only in Genesis 1, but also in Genesis 2. It's it's the perspective that I'm not the most important person. You're not the most important person, but that the other is. It's Philippians chapter 2 where Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider everyone else better than yourself. We're willing to submit to each other only by the power of Christ after the fall. But prior to the fall, we were made to just do that naturally. And yieldedness leads to flourishing. And then number four, thread number four is certainly community or this, this sense of bonding that we have. You can call it fellowship or relationship. You can call it togetherness. Uh, social scientists call it a sense of immediacy between certain people, that there's just a, a connection that's there. Well, in creation, in the garden, before the fall, this sense of immediacy, this connection that you have with some but not with others, you have it with everybody. 
And certainly we see it in the Trinity that there's this sense of immediacy between the Trinity, but we also see it in this idea that the two will become one flesh. And I know, that's describing marriage, Frank. Yeah, I know it does, but it's also representative of the closeness without sin that we all should have in relationship with one another. We need to remember that everything we're describing here is void of sin at this moment. I'll give you more on that in just a minute. And then number five, the last thread of flourishing is giving or generosity. I mean, just look at how the humans are living from a perspective of giving and not receiving. The man is giving himself to the garden and to his work and to his wife. And, and, and he even gives himself to the animals in terms of caring for them. And she gives herself to the same things and gives herself to him. There's a true spirit of generosity because God has been so generous with them. That's how we've been created. That's how we were created. I have a lot of people ask me this question because I'm a pastor. They, and here's how the question goes. I don't know if there's a wording on the internet, but they all have the same wording. If God is such a good and loving God, why did He create a world where there's so much suffering? If God is such a good and loving God, why did He create a world where there's so much suffering? And the answer is, He didn't. He didn't. The suffering and the brokenness and the challenges come in as a result of us. And that's what we're going to look at next week. It all gets broken. Sin enters. We hear these things that I just described today in Genesis 1 and 2, and we pine for these things because we were created for these things. We were created for covenant and intimacy and yieldedness and community and, and generosity. We were created to, to know and to be known. We were created to love and to, and to be loved. And what we see in God's good and perfect creation is all five threads in perfection and beauty. That was the original intention of family. What we just went through was the original intention of family. Humanity thrives when these five threads work and are harmonious, but it's broken. The fall corrupted not only the relationship that human beings have with God, that human beings have with each other, that human beings have with the creation, and that human beings have with themselves, not only is that broken, but all of these threads, all of these traits of flourishing are broken as well. So flourishing is hard, amen? And it is also, uh, ultimately, the flourishing that we do get, it doesn't fulfill us the way we think it's going to fulfill us because even that is broken. And so now, we're exiles, We've been exiled from the garden. At the end of chapter 3, God exiles the man and the woman from the garden and we've been exiled ever since and we're living as exiled in this broken and corrupt world. And the way back, of course, is Jesus. It's the Gospel. The Gospel-centered life is the one that gets humanity closest to Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, which is where we want to be. And what becomes essential after the fall, which we're going to see next week as we talk about it, what becomes essential are three new things. And that is grace, forgiveness, and humility. We need the grace of God to be reconciled to Him. Nothing else can reconcile us to Him but only His grace. We need forgiveness of our sin to be made clean and justified to be able to stand before Him as righteous people. And we need the humility to admit that we need it and to accept it. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we'll look at next week. We'll look more closely at the fall, at what it did, and how family can respond to that. Let me pray, and Cody or Sean will come and lead us in in, uh, our time of reflection. God, 
Uh, we thank you that you did create us good and with these threads that are actually recoverable through the gospel. And so I pray that we would be gospel-centered people who would take family seriously, that we would value the things that you value, God. Break our hearts over the things that break your heart. Help us to do that. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.